All right, 2 Thessalonians 2. We're almost done with this series. We're going to finish it up next Sunday, and then we'll do three, seri- uh, three Sundays in kind of the Advent Christmas uh, theme and talk and kind of lead ourselves up to Christmas Day. So we do have this week and next week yet in Thessalonians, but we are getting close to the end. So we're going to work through a ton today, all of chapter 2, and then we'll do all of chapter 3 next week. So uh, we're going to just kind of buckle in here and, and work through a lot, but, um, but I think it'll be really good to, to see what God's Word says to us in this. Um, as I read through this passage, I think the, the question that came to my mind as I was thinking about it was, uh, have, have I ever been, like, duped by somebody? You know what I, you know what I mean? Like, like manipulated or, or uh, tricked or deceived? And, and, of course, the answer is yes. Um, we, we all have, right? Whether that's a politician that we believed would bring change but didn't, which happens every, every time, um, whether it's a pastor uh, who taught us things that we read the Bible for ourselves and realized, oh, that's not in there. Um, Maybe it was a friend or a family member that you've had that lied to you or deceived you or embellished a story that you thought was true. And um, when we go through those kinds of moments, we, we definitely uh, get shaken by that. Our confidence in those people are shaken. Um, and, but we're not the first group of people to be deceived or to be tricked or to be lied to. We see that that's actually what's happening in, in the Thessalonian church. And Paul's writing this, this part of the letter, the middle of the letter. And I think you could argue that the whole letter is written because of this issue. Um, that they were being deceived, they were being lied to, they were being manipulated by someone. And they were confused because of it. And, and we, we find out as we read the letter, as actually we read the first letter to the Thessalonians as well, we find out that the primary area in which this deception is happening is through the end times or through the return of Christ and the doctrine of, of what we would call eschatology in theological terms. This, how does God bring all this to an end and when does Christ return? And Paul spends a, a bunch of time in the first letter trying to correct some of this, but he also does some follow-up in the second letter. This letter was written only a few months perhaps after the first one. Uh, basically what happens is you have this back and forth with Timothy where he goes to Thessalonica, then he goes to Paul and reports, and then Paul writes the first letter and sends it back with Timothy, and then he comes back with another report, uh, and then Paul writes another letter, and on and on it goes, right? And so Timothy's running back and forth. But this letter was written probably just a matter of months after the first. And so Paul's still trying to correct some things. And this is probably happening because they send some questions back w- with Timothy when Paul returned, to, uh, when, t- when he returned to Paul. So here's where we can get into the passage. If you look at verse 1 to the first half of verse 3, we see what the problem is. Let's read it. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, and sisters, right? That's the word is a generic word for brothers and sisters. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you 
in any way. So, so here's what's happening. This is really interesting and, and kind of to us in 2022 uh, might seem kind of outrageous that this is even happening. But the church in Thessalonica, this was only, this is one of Paul's earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. So this was written probably in AD 50. So if Jesus was crucified in AD 33-ish, this is only, you know, 20 years or less after Jesus is ascended into heaven. This is not a long time. Um, And so there's there's just a lot of confusion about the return of Christ, what that's going to mean, how how that plays out. And evidently there was a group uh, or someone who is deceiving this church and teaching them that Jesus has actually already come back and they missed it. And, and that's really hard for us to imagine anybody believing that. But again, there was just, this was so fresh, everything. Christianity was so new at this time that it, it, it makes sense why they would be taken, uh, taken this way, right? Especially if there seems to be some credibility from the person who's writing or saying these things to them. And so they're obviously confused about the return of Christ. That's clear, right? He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you not to be quickly shaken or alarmed. And so he, he's writing to them to just say, hey, calm down. Just bring the temperature down. You guys are okay. You're fine. Um, and he writes this letter. Probably you could argue the whole letter of Second Thessalonians was written to clarify this issue and to make this church realize that they were, were safe, that they were okay, that they didn't miss the, the return of Christ. And so Paul is trying to give some clarification here. We, we know that there's a problem in this church because Paul tells them to let no one deceive them in any way. Uh, particularly on the issue of Christ's return, but I think that the application is broader than that, right? Don't be deceived in any way uh, as, it regard, as it relates to the doctrines of the faith. But this particular doctrine was what they were struggling with and being deceived by. And so as Paul writes in verse 2, he says, Do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So evidently someone in some way was telling this church that the day of the Lord had already come, that they missed it, that they were just out of luck. And, and this was really stirring up some fear, anxiety, and concern in this church that Paul's trying to direct and correct and re, uh, just kind of bring some sanity into the situation. So Paul lays out three ways in which this may have been conveyed. Um, he says, by a spirit, so he's, I guess he's got a category that perhaps uh, they, somebody was hearing some, something from an angel or what seemed to be an angel. Um, that's a possibility. He also lays out a spoken word. So somebody may have come into the church and taught them these things directly in person. Or this is the one that seems to be the most likely issue that, that is happening because it's very specific, right? A spirit or a spoken word, pretty generic, this one's like really specific, or a letter seeming to be from us. So, so I think that that's really what the problem is. But Paul's giving other categories where this could be a problem. It could be through someone teaching it. It could be through 
some, some spirit trying to deceive uh, the church. But the real problem seems to be that there was a letter that was addressed to this church, seemingly from Paul and his friends, saying, teaching that this had actually happened, that the day of the Lord had come. And of course, Paul is writing this to go, no, 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 I didn't write you that. Don't, don't believe that letter. Now, the reason I think that that's really the issue is because one, it's very specific. Um, it's like a very specific issue that Paul's drawing out. But if you actually look at the last couple verses of the, of the letter itself, verse 17 of chapter three, he says, Paul, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So obviously that's the problem. Right? There was this letter going around, circulating through the church in Thessalonica that looked like it was from Paul, said it was from Paul, and it was deceptive on, on the issue of Christ's return. And so Paul is clearly doubling down here as he c- closes out the letter by going, you see, this is how I sign my letters. This is how I write. This is my handwriting. Like This is what it looks like so that you're not taken for a ride again. Um, so I think that that's what's happening. They're being deceived by uh, a letter that somebody counterfeit in the name of Paul. So in other words, uh, in, our, in our vernacular day, we would call this catfishing, okay, right? You know, catfishing, it's like when someone on the internet pretends to be someone else, usually to get money from someone. So lots of celebrities get, get like fake accounts made in their name and, and then they try to funnel money, uh, you know, from easily deceived people, right, to, to give them money. Let's call them that, easily deceived people. Uh, and, and so this is something that has, it's not new. This is not new. This is an old problem. There's just different technology to do this with. Um, but that's what's happening. Somebody is uh, catfishing Paul and is trying to take this church for, for a ride. So um, now from the rest of this section, it starts to get a little wild here, okay? So let's just, let's just hang in here because it gets a little interesting. Um, Paul is going to give them, this church, a specific reason why they can know that the day of the Lord has not come yet, why Jesus has not come back yet. And, and if we just keep reading, we'll look at verse, second half of verse three through uh, verse uh, 12 probably. We'll, this is a long section, but we'll read it all and then we'll, we'll back up. So it says, we'll just start at the beginning of verse three. Let no one deceive you in any way for or because the day, that day, the day of Christ's return will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when these, uh, that when I was with, still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who do not believe in the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so uh, Paul gives a specific reason why Jesus hasn't come back yet. And the reason is because the rebellion led by a man of lawlessness has not happened yet. Okay, um, we need some humility here because we, we don't know who this person is. We don't know who Paul's referring to exactly. There are lots of ways in which the church historians and theologians and people have tried to make sense of this. And there's generally three overarching views of this. Um, and one is uh, that Paul was referring to someone who was going to come in his day, in his time. Uh, and the theory is that he might have been talking about the Roman emperor because this letter was written before AD 70 when the destruction of Jerusalem happened. So there is a theory that this would have, that this happened and it's referring to the emperor of Rome as he goes into the temple of God in Jerusalem and destroys it, desecrates the temple in the process and that that's who this man of lawlessness is. Okay, that's one view. The view of the reformers, uh, Luther and Calvin, is that this would be a rebellion risen up from within the church, and they pointed to the Pope of their day as the guy who this is talking about. And then there's the view that most of us probably have held or have heard uh, that it's a, still a yet future political leader who is going to deceive Israel, somehow bring peace to the Middle East in the process, uh, bring about this re remade temple and uh, set himself up as, as God. And uh, here's the fact, we just don't know. Like, let's just, let's just acknowledge that. It, and I don't think it actually matters that much. Um, there's, a, there, there's a way to think about this as I think is helpful. So what does Hitler, Obama, Harry Kissinger, and the Pope all have in common? Well, it's that they were all called the Antichrist at some point in time, right? Like, that's, that's, I think that's helpful because throughout all of history, people have tried to point their finger at the right person for this. And over time, it's been Hitler, it's been the Pope, it's been presidents of the United States, it's been secretaries of state, it's been random people. It's, it's just all kind of unhelpful. Let, let's just simply look at what Paul is saying here. And, and maybe this is a future thing. Maybe this is already, uh, this person's already come. And so all we're waiting for is Jesus to come back because it's already done and over with. Regardless of whether it's done or it's still future, I think the point here is that this person is opposing himself against God and exalting himself. All right, that's what verse four says. It says this person opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And so he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, we've seen that happen in the Old Testament with Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen that happen uh, throughout history with lots of prideful, narcissistic leaders who claim that they're God, right, in one form or another. So that's, that's pretty generic. 
It's happened many times, but there may be a future day when this happens again, and probably likely will. Uh, secondly, Paul says this person will be aligned with Satan and his work in verse 9. It says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And so um, evidently there will be a, a point in which this person can show some powers and wonders or do some false miracles through the power of Satan over God, perhaps. And so that's one category here. Thirdly, we see that this man will be, uh, will be able to deceive those who refuse to know the truth. In verse 10, it says, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, meaning those who have rejected Christ, because they've refused to love the truth and so to be saved. So there are people who refuse to love the truth and be saved, and those people are being deceived by this person. And so, okay, fine. All of that... Um, describes this man of lawlessness. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know Jesus hasn't come back because this guy hasn't been uh, active yet. Now, again, who knows if that person has been active since this letter was written, which was very early. Uh, maybe, maybe not. And we're going to just keep some humility about this. Uh, but the key, the key thing in this is, is crucial. It's actually back in verse 8. Um, this is where I think Paul really wants this church to be comforted. It says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. At the end of the day, Paul wants this church to know this. There, there's going to be this lawless man who leads a rebellion against, against God, but at the end of the day, he's killed by Jesus. Jesus is going to kill this guy, whoever he is or whoever he was. Uh, Jesus has authority over him. So oftentimes this passage is, though the word is not used in this passage, uh, this passage is often seen as uh, about the Antichrist, right? Which is, I know in kind of end times language is, again, going to be this future man who ra is raised up and does all these things. Um, whether that's the case or not, I, I, it's beyond my pay grade. But he, here's, here's what I can say. Um, I, I think that that's probably true. But the Bible also clearly tells us that there are many antichrists who have been in this world and will continue to be. Because antichrists are people who oppose themselves to God. The, the uh, gospel, uh, excuse me, the epistle of 1 John uh, talks about this quite a bit in chapter 2. Uh, he, he starts to talk about the antichrists in the plural form. Uh, he says, um, verse 22 of, verse, of chapter 2, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you uh, heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made for us, eternal life. Um, he says, uh, I'm sorry, we're, I gotta find, oh yeah, verse 18, back in verse 18, he says, children, it's the last hour, as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. But so now many antichrists, plural, have come. 
Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So according to John, it seems like Jesus can come back at any time. It's the last hour. Like any, any minute, he could. He may not, right? But he could. There's nothing prohibiting Jesus from coming back at this moment because we've heard the Antichrist is coming, but you know what? Many Antichrists have already come. And so I think that that passage paired with 2 Thessalonians is helpful, and it, at least it helps me untangle a lot of this and go, well, you know what? Whether there's a future person out there or whether that person's already arrived, what we need to know is Jesus is going to take care of this. Now, let's, let's transition here a little bit. Because I think for most of us, though some of us might be kind of end times crazy people, I don't think most of us are. And I, and I don't think that most of us are super concerned about all of this nuance. And we certainly, I, I don't think, are concerned that Jesus has already come back, which is what the Thessalonians were worried about. I've been a pastor 15, 16 something years, and I've never once had a counseling meeting Uh, where somebody has sat across from me and said, you know, I'm afraid Jesus has already come back and I missed it. It's just never happened. Again, uh, that's anecdotal. That's me, right? I don't know how how, uh, many meetings other guys have had about this, but I've never once had a person ask me if Jesus has already come back. Sometimes it feels like he has or, you know, whatever, because things are kind of crazy or whatever. Like last couple weeks ago, we were in in Orlando and there was... um, a hurricane that came through and it was like the third time in recorded history that a hurricane came through in November. So that was fun. We got to live through that and, and it wasn't a bad hurricane. It was whatever. It was a rainstorm. But we went out um, the, the next morning as the hurricane, we were kind of in the eye of the hurricane. So it was pretty calm and we're driving to the church that we were going to for that day to do some, do some work. And um, there was nothing happening. There was no cars on the road. It was just me and Crystal driving in this rental car, absolutely dead. And, and if you've been to Florida lately, you know that's never dead in Florida. Like it is just crazy town, people everywhere. Uh, it takes 10 minutes to make a right-hand turn because people are everywhere. So there was no one on the streets, uh, except we eventually found a guy who was homeless or something. And we're like, okay, well, there's at least one other person. We'll start civilization back up with him, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th- it was like that moment where you're like, did we miss something? Th- did something happen? And we, we slept through it. But obviously, no. We got to the church and people were there and we were fine. Uh, but, you know, yeah, so you have those kind of comical moments where you feel like you're the last person on earth and you're going, did we miss it? Uh, but for most of us, we're not, we're not like actively worried about that. What we are worried about, though, is a lot of other things, right? We're, we're worried about money and security. We're worried about the political world and, and the country we live in. We're, we're worried about a lot of things. And I think that weirdly, this passage, though it's about this future or past or whatever antichrist, future at least for the Thessalonians, that, that Paul was trying to encourage them with, don't freak out. You're going to be okay. Uh, this guy hasn't shown up yet. Jesus hasn't come back, right? He's, he's trying to calm them with that reality. Even though that may not be the deepest fear that you and I carry, this passage does encourage us with comfort because uh, where Paul goes next is where he wants them to, to land. So look at verse 13. It says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, 
brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good, hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. See what Paul's doing here? This is, this is really a wonderful thing. He's taking them from this place of anxiety, fear, and discouragement because they've been deceived and lied to about the coming of Christ. And he, he just pivots them away from that. He gives them one reason why they don't have to be afraid of this, like one tangible, like, okay, don't worry because this guy hasn't shown up yet. Okay, fine. But that's not ultimately where he lands his words of comfort. He lands his words of comfort, which are for them important and for us important. He reminds them first and foremost that they have been chosen by God to be saved through the spirit and the truth of the gospel. Right? That's what verse 13 and 14 says. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he reminds them first and foremost, and this is so helpful and, and important for us. It, when we get shaken and shift and worried and fearful, all we have to do is pivot back and remember, why do we have to be afraid? We are loved by God. We've been chosen by him for salvation, which means that nothing that happens to us can ultimately harm us. Yeah, we can die in the body, but our souls will be with Jesus forever. We will one day be with him on a new heavens and a new earth when he returns. There is, there is a long view here that Paul is trying to bring them back to. Remember how they were loved and chosen by God. Remember that in your own heart when you are wrestling with the things of confusion and fear and anxiety. God has loved you and he's chosen you to be saved. That's a beautiful thing. We also see another thing here in verse 15. Look at, look at what he says. He's kind of applying that reality to their lives. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. So he tells them to stand firm and hold on to something, right? And that, that actually goes back to where he started this in verse two, where he says that they are quickly shaken or alarmed, right? So to be quickly shaken is the opposite of standing firm. To be alarmed is the opposite of holding firm to something. And so what does Paul tell them to hold on to? to what, what firm foundation has he built for them or has he pointed to them? He didn't build it, right? But what foundation is he drawing their hearts back to? Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word, so when they were there in person teaching, or our letter. 
So what Paul is saying is this, is that God has not only called us to be saved and has drawn us to himself through his love, which is true. He's also given us the traditions of God's word to hold us to a a steady foundation, to keep us from being tossed to and fro. A number of years later, Paul wrote another letter to a different church in the city of Ephesus. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, Paul takes this church to a similar place. Verse 11 to 32 is the whole section, but we'll, uh, we won't read quite that far. We'll start in verse 11 and go down to verse 16 probably here. It says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So why did he give us the apostles and the prophets, the the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers? Why did God give us all those people, past and present? Is verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, or by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. We can actually stop there. I think that highlights the point that Paul's making in First Thess- in Second Thessalonians as well. He's, he's elaborating on this thought for us in Ephesians. He's saying that we have been given this tradition uh, through the apostles' teachings, through the prophets of the Old Testament, and, and through the the active work of spiritual leaders in the church today, right? So the apostles and prophets are Bible, okay? We can just call that Bible uh, because we have the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament. They wrote the words that, that keep us firmly rooted in Jesus. We don't need to add to this book. We don't need to improve upon this book. This is what we need. But we also have leaders and ministries in our day right now, which Paul would call the, the evangelists, the, the shepherds, and the teachers. Some translations have shepherds and teachers as one category. Others separate them out like this one does, ESV. But the idea here is that you've got the apostles and prophets. They're the, they're the foundation of the whole thing. The whole Christian faith is built on the, the, the foundation of their teaching through the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And then those things are helped to be applied through the local church, through the evangelists and shepherds and teachers working in the local church. And I think what Paul's telling this church in Thessalonica is, you guys are freaking out about things because you're not holding on to what you know to be true, which is the traditions that we have passed on to you that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And I think that we've lost a lot of that along the way in our lives too, where we have, we have shifted our priorities so much that we have actually forgotten what, what steadies our lives. There, there's a book out there called, it's a pretty new book, it's called The Wisdom Pyramid. Um, and it's a really helpful book. It, there's, and there's a picture here that goes along with it. I'll have it thrown up on the screen for you. Um, basically, this uh, picture is from the book, and 
he, he's building this book around this pyramid picture, kind of like the food pyramid, where the base of the, the pyramid should be the priority of our lives and then gradually go from there. And what you see in this is that the Bible stands at the base of the pyramid. The Bible and the word of God has to be the basis of our lives or else we're going to be tipping and, and potentially falling over. The second ring of this, uh, rung of this uh, pyramid is the church, the local church, right? And I think that those two rungs on their own are really what the Bible says in, in Ephesians and in 1 Thessalonians, that this whole thing has to be built on the apostles and prophets, which is sh- kind of shorthand for that would be the Bible, and then the evangelist shepherds and teachers, which would be local church ministry, right? The, these are the things that God has wired for us to, to build our lives on. And then this guy, this guy's name is Brett McCracken. He wrote, he's the one who wrote the book. He throws out nature as the third rung, right? So getting out into what God has made and, and learning about life through, through the world that God has created. I don't think I have to convince you to do that. We live in nature for the most part here. People in the cities really need to hit, hit that hard. But, but I think we all understand the value of nature because we've chosen to live here, um, which is a beautiful thing, right? And then the fourth rung is books, so learning from other Christian authors. And the, f- the fifth rung is, he calls it beauty. I would say it's, you know, things that draw our hearts to something beyond ourselves, whether that's music or film or something like that that can get us outside of ourselves. And then the very top of the pyramid, you can see here, is social media. And the whole book is basically saying that we have, we've basically reversed this order as a culture. And, and most of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us, and probably increasingly more and more of us, are spending most of our time on the internet and social media for our information, for our knowledge, for our wisdom. And I think what this author's point is, is if we turn this pyramid upside down, it's a very unsteady way to live. And, and so anyways, you can take that picture down. We, we're, we don't need to belabor this. It's, it's, I just thought that was a helpful picture. And I think we do need to think about this and go, well, where am I spending the bulk of my time in grounding myself? How do I stand firm and hold on? Is it the shifting sands of the internet and all the things that go into that? Or is it actually the word of God in the local church, which is what it should be? There's something for us to think through and consider. And again, that's just, that picture is just one guy's view, and you can maybe argue a little bit about it. But I think the, the point that we can't argue about is he's absolutely right that the Bible and the church take the precedence if we're going to be wise, if we're going to live lives of stability. We need those to be at the base of the pyramid for our lives. So we see here that we are chosen by God. We are loved by him. We have been given the traditions of the, of the word of God in the local church to keep us from being tossed to and fro. And then he concludes this chapter with one more thing. Verse 16 and 17, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good, hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You see what this, this apostle Paul who 
is really pastoring this church is doing. He's, he starts this whole thing with, you are just shaken in mind and you're alarmed. And then he concludes it with, God the Father loves you and gives you comfort and hope through grace. You guys, that's true for us. We will be eternally loved and comforted by Jesus himself. So we do not need to fear. We don't need to be shaken. We don't need to be anxious all the time. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't struggle with those things. We're humans. All, every human is anxious. Every human struggles with fear. Every, we're, we're, we understand that. Okay, I'm not shaming you if you feel those things. I feel those things. You do. Everyone does. But we have somewhere where we can turn with those fears. And it's the word of God that points us to this love that we have from Jesus. And if we're continually redirecting ourselves there, we'll be in much better shape than we are if we're constantly going to shifting and sinking sand. Be comforted that you are eternally loved by Jesus. Comfort your hearts. May he comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you have called us and saved us and brought us into your family and you've brought us into the local church and you've given us traditions from your word that, that can steady us and, and guard us and keep us from shifting and sinking sand. We pray, God, that you would help us to prioritize our lives in the right ways, that you, by your spirit, would give us wisdom so that we're not like the Thessalonians, shaking and alarmed all the time. Would you help us go to the right sources, which would be your word, first and foremost. Would you help us, God, to, to rest in those things? And we pray that you would do this in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.